Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You guys, welcome to episode 85 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives in the well-known and more importantly, not so well-known hookups of your favorite reality TV stars. It's me, Troy McKeady. How is it going? It's been two weeks since I've seen you. I am back. I don't know if I'm better than ever, but I'm definitely back. I'm here. I'm in physical form. Um, <clears throat> last week was a goddamn nightmare. Not only did I get sick, which I, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm just going to have to get my tonsils taken out. Because I just don't think it's this normal. I don't think it's normal at 30 years old to have this many issues with my voice or my throat. And I know that I, like, make jokes about how I'm always, like, talking and, like, I talk for a long time doing this podcast, but this is this is an hour a week. It's not like I'm doing this every day. You know what I mean? So there's something definitely wrong. But besides that, I ordered, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I ordered Chinese to watch the Oscars. I got so excited. I was, like, ready to force myself to cry for Gaga and, like, not really mean it. And uh, I got food poisoning. Like literally, I I will not go into detail about what uh, about what transpired, but honey, I had a big storm coming. Let's just say that, okay? Let's just say I learned things about my body that I was maybe not meant to learn. Things that could do that I didn't know, um, functions it could perform that I didn't I I, I didn't know that, that anybody any human body could. Um, it was it was a travesty. I, so now I'm like. I'm going to the grocery store tomorrow. I'm doing a full cleanse. Uh, I, I only want to eat things that can grow from the ground. Like, I'm fully ready to, like, green out and just, like, clean all, all of the toxins out of my body. Because I think right now I am just toxic sludge. Like, I'm an Alex Mack puddle of, like, radiation of just toxic sludge. Like, it's not safe for anybody to, to be near me. Um... But neither here nor there, I'm really, 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 I don't know if excited is the word for today's episode. You saw the title. You know what we're talking about today. Um, I don't know if excited is the word. Uh, I'm, I'm more fired up, I guess. Uh, obviously, you know, we're going to be talking today about Mandy Moore and Ryan Adams. And, um, you know, I'm always honest with you guys about when <laughs> I'm discussing somebody that I consider to be a blind spot. And Ryan Adams was very much that for me. Like, of course, I know who Ryan Adams is, and I know, um, I know a few of his songs. But like, I'm not, I'm not like a really big Ryan Adams head. I never have been. Um, believe it or not, I don't love alt country. Um, I've just, you know, he's always just been like a guy that I know that's really important to music and that people respect really intensely. Um, but after doing this episode, I'm like, this man is the most like egotistical neurotic um obsessive just just a gross weird little uh little shit with a proclivity towards anger and rage and 
and brattiness and cattiness and and and, and pouting and just self-importance. I mean, he's just the most narcissistic little fucker I've I've ever come across. Like I, I don't know if I've ever experienced anything like this as far as research. He's a really confusing individual. I don't think that I have him figured out. I really don't. Like I, I think that I may have only just scratched the surface of Ryan Adams, and I think that 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 was enough for me. I don't want to go any deeper into his. I just I don't. I'm not. I'm not a fan. And especially now, you know how I feel about anybody who wrongs Mandy Moore. You know how triggered I am by the mere mention of her name. You guys know how I feel about Mandy. I love her. I champion her. I ride for her. I defend her. And I'm I'm just here for her. And um, obviously, we're doing this episode because last month, an article, a New York Times article was released about um, some abuse, some abuse allegations from Ryan Adams from a handful of women who kind of, you know, band together and decided it's unfair for this man to have this effect on us, including Mandy Moore, and including a girl who, uh, during the time of the alleged abuse, was 14. So, we're going to get into all of it. I'm going to break down as much of it as I can, and hopefully we leave this having some better understanding of what is wrong with this fucking psychopath guy. Um, and yeah, I haven't talked about Mandy in a long time. It's been about a year and uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to delve into that portion of this, but I'm also, like, nervous, and I'm shredding lightly because I just want to... This is, like, such a fresh news story. Like, it literally came out last month, and I just want to make sure that I cover everything appropriately, and uh, I don't want to screw up anybody's claims or anything, so I'm going to do my best to make sense of all this stuff for you. I missed you, by the way. I missed... I, I'm, I'm really amped up because I have a lot to say, and I'm just, like, excited to get back into the swing of things. I've got a really, really good, good cup of tea in front of me right now. It's like, it's a Christmas blend, but hey, who has to know, right? It doesn't have to know that it's, uh, that it's, uh, not Christmas. It's fine. Anyway, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Mandy Moore and Ryan Adams started dating in, uh, late 2007, and they got engaged in February of 09. Um, they were separated officially in March of the same year, and they separated in August of 2014. Their divorce became final in June of 2016. Um, Ryan staunchly denied that he was dating Mandy Moore at the beginning, and he went as far as to attack, you know, all these media outlets for printing, quote, lies. Um, He sort of announced their breakup and relationship at the same time in an article that we'll get to, of course, and um, he sort of blamed Mandy Moore's level of fame as the reason that they broke up. Of course, nothing to do with him. You'll learn very quickly that Ryan Adams doesn't like to take any sort of accountability for anything he's ever done wrong. According to him, he's made no mistakes so far in life. How lucky. Um, Ryan and Mandy were also very fiercely private about their relationship. They were one of those couples. And it's because of him. I mean, they were just... um, private to the point that it created more of a spectacle around them you know one of those couples you know he would shut down interviews where they asked him about her and um i mean he was just he was very protective in a way that was like almost kind of confusing to people about this relationship and uh and like i said in february this new york times article was released um 
the article is called Ryan Adams Dangled Success. Women's, uh, women, uh, women say they paid a price. Uh, so if you want to, I don't know, pa- if you haven't read it or if you haven't heard about it, if you want to maybe pause me and go back and, and read over it before we discuss this and then you'll have a better understanding of what I'm talking about, um, that would be totally fine. And uh, yeah, in reference to Mandy... This article describes a scenario in which Ryan essentially blocked Mandy from pursuing her music career during this very pivotal time in her life where she was sort of transitioning and she had picked up some momentum and people were sort of respecting her as an actual artist, which is what she's always wanted since she was a little girl, Um, you know, thrusting her hips to the song Candy. You know, she finally had gotten the respect she was looking for and he kind of pulled the rug from underneath her. So, since we've talked about Mandy before um, on this podcast, I figured we could start with Ryan. Um, Again, some of you, I'm listening to this, I know, like, this was probably a really big heartbreak for you and you loved Ryan Adams, and to find out that he's not only uh, an abuser, but he's also a pedophile, it's gotta be be tough, you know what I mean? Um, It's hard finding out that your faves are pedophiles, but I I really truthfully feel like it was, this is gonna continue to keep happening. Because the music industry, as mentioned in that New York Times article, has been sort of um, unscathed by the Me Too movement, in a sense. It's, it's really mostly been prolific actors and television stars. Um, musicians haven't really paid the price yet. And I think that that's because there's this um, this sort of, I don't know, this unspoken understanding amongst people that like you know rock stars are rock stars and you know groupies are groupies and they hook up with young girls of course because they're rock stars and things are excused because they're musicians um and i think that i don't know i think within the next year or so like we'll see a shift in that and maybe this ryan adams story is the first uh like sort of like the harvey weinstein moment uh for the music industry where this the first sort of domino to be pushed down and then we'll slowly start seeing people coming out and talking about their experiences and stuff but like i said we're gonna go ahead and start with ryan which i'm i gotta be honest i'm not excited about but this is we have to do what we have to do um i know ryan adams who grew up he grew up in north carolina um he had a pretty tumultuous childhood he described it himself as dysfunctional uh his sister his brother and his mom um, at a really young age, actually became homeless after his parents divorced uh, when he was a kid. And at that point, he went and lived with his grandparents, who essentially raised him. And his grandparents pretty much taught him everything that he knew about pop culture, about poetry, music, books, film, television. Um, they exposed him to artists that he ironically would end up you know releasing work with or you know working for producing music for them um he dropped out of jacksonville high school at 16 and joined a couple of short-lived bands a very sort of cliche coming of age story for a rock star um you know he was in a band called black label uh which he left in 1991 for a punk band called the patty duke syndrome and they split in 94 I read an um, an inter- uh, an article that was about him from The Guardian that said, uh, or it was a quote where he said, I was a loner with low self-esteem who dropped out of school. No different from a lot of people, he shrugs. If you don't have an outlet, you become a criminal or a misanthropic. 
the outlet arrived when he heard the Smiths compilation album, uh, Hateful of uh, Hateful of Hollow. Um, he said, to this day, the emotion I feel when I hear this album is indescribable. Then in 1984, he formed uh, Whiskey Town, which, again, if you're a Ryan Adams fan, I'm 99% positive you know who Whiskey Town is. Um, and he explained to the, the members of the band that he had basically been in this punk rock group for a while. And it was hard for him to sing the music. It was hard on his throat. He loved punk rock music, but he wasn't able to perform it long term. And he wanted to do something different. Um, and at the time, he was very heavily influenced by uh, these sort of alternative country artists. He was really into Graham Parsons. Um, and that was where he wanted to kind of go artistically. And when they released their debut album, Faithless Street, in 1995, they became sort of the face of this alt-country movement in the early 90s. Um, the album was adored by music critics, and it became the catalyst for the... for Obviously, for, like, record labels to start reaching out. Like, it didn't really take much time at all for Ryan Adams to pick up steam in the music industry. Like, as soon as he kind of made his debut, people were sort of vying for his attention to either work with him or to sign him or to perform with him or whatever. Um a label called Outpost Records reached out to him. Um, at the time, that was a label owned by Geffen Records, and in 1997, they released their first major label release, Strange- Stranger's Almanac, and uh, this was really what established Ryan Adams as, you know, a respected singer-songwriter, and an artist that you would consider to be, um, in my opinion, from what I've read and from what I've heard, sort of genreless. You know what I mean? Ryan Adams is technically somebody who, like, you couldn't really put into a genre. Like, he he had just come from a punk band and was now performing, like, this alternative country rock music. Um, and even in that, like, the music itself was still sort of, like, folky and sort of indie rock and very, like, hipstery, pre-hipster movement. he sort of bounces in between these genres and styles, like not only within a song, but within an album. Um, and that was something that he kind of fine tuned and became known for, for the rest of his career. And in the late nineties, a merger between universal and polygram records took place, which somehow resulted in outpost records closing, which meant, um, this band's follow up album was placed on hold and it was stuck in limbo um, for a few years until 2001, and by that time the band had already broken up. Now, in September of the year 2000, Ryan released his first solo album, Heartbreaker, and he actually said in an interview once that the album's title was inspired by Mariah Carey. Uh, his manager called him on the phone and was like, look, the label needs a title for this album. They want to release it as soon as possible. You have to give me a title in 15 seconds. And he looked over to his right and he saw a Mariah Carey poster in whatever room he was in. And it was Mariah wearing her Heartbreaker uh, tank top. And he was like, let's just name it Heartbreaker. So it literally means nothing. It li- it literally came from Mariah Carey's shirt. Um But, like, by this time, like, Ryan was in this weird sort of sweet spot where critics loved him and the music he released was really gushed over by critics and by music publications and magazines and, you know, Rolling Stone and whatever. But he didn't sell, like, an obscene amount 
of uh, copies of his album. He wasn't like some big, you know, juggernaut when it came to record sales. Um, and he, their live performances, well, his live performances as a solo artist were actually, um, they were kind of poorly received. Like, in other words, up to this point, he was sort of like a music, a music industry darling. But the people going out and buying his music and seeing him perform and, like, standing in line at fucking FYE or whatever, they weren't um, feeling it as, as intensely as uh, as one would think. But now these albums, especially his first couple solo albums, have gone on to become, uh, I mean, they're kind of iconic. I mean, not I, I, again, I, Ryan Adams is a really big blind spot for me, but from what I've read... These two albums are really prolific and are a really big deal and uh, really kind of changed the direction that music was going during this time. There was a lot of people trying to kind of copy his sound and he became a really prolific uh, figure in the music industry. He ended up releasing a follow-up album, uh, Gold, that was really... um, This is what introduced him to a mainstream audience and this is where he... You sort of see the record sales pick up and people become a lot more fanatical about Ryan, not just within the industry, but like actually, you know, Deborah who goes to the mall to pick up like a blazer from Eddie Bauer or whatever. Like Deborah ended up falling in love with the gold album. Um, And not only was the album well received, but the music video for his first single, New York, New York, featured Ryan performing in front of the New York City skyline. And ironically, the video just so happened to come out four days prior to September 11th, which meant MTV and VH1 heavily rotated this song in this music video. I don't know if you guys remember when September 11th happened, any song, especially a song that had come out recently, like any music video or song that had come out uh, within the year that was sort of um, patriotic or hopeful in any way just got so much airplay and then songs like lover boy <laughs> by mariah carey that were like frivolous pop songs like got completely ignored but there were these artists like ryan who just sort of fell into the lap of september 11th and became these like hopeful figures even though they didn't mean it and had no obviously had no idea that was going to happen um but this music video became like a a, a big pillar of of hope for people during this time it was also during this time that ryan became a full-fledged like mainstream artist you know like not only in the sense that he was being you know being played and releasing music for mtv but he had also kind of unintentionally become sort of an industry puppet. And, uh, you know, now that he's like this profitable, he has like all these record executives telling him what to do and all these people telling him what his next move should be and what his next sound sh- should sound like or whatever, what his next album should be, who, she- who he should be catering to, the people who are buying his records. It became like a whole thing. He became like an industry. Uh, the label ended up blocking him from having any sort of creative involvement in what would be released as his next single they decided it would be best to pick a handful of songs that were previously deemed either too sad or not worthy of a release and put them on his next album and like not to skip too far ahead because we literally just got into him but i just want to say really quickly that like there's a lot i find a lot of irony in the fact that somebody like ryan adams 
who is somebody who takes himself extremely serious. Like he, Ryan Adams sees nothing funny about Ryan Adams. Um, and he's somebody that, you know, the public takes so serious. He's this prolific, iconic musical genius who, you know, changed the music industry in the 90s. You know, he later went on to tell Mandy Moore when they were dating that she wasn't a real artist. And, um, because she couldn't play an instrument. And it's like, stories like this really put into perspective. They put it into perspective for me, honestly. Because it's like... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here's the thing. Any artist releasing mainstream music being played on MTV is in some form, an industry puppet. They're all being styled. They're all being handled by handlers. They all have hundreds of people making decisions for them. Ryan Adams wasn't even allowed to choose the songs on his follow-up solo album. But he is considered to be this, like, super cool, like, amazing artist who played with Billy Nelson. And it's like, yeah, well, he also didn't even get to choose his songs. You know what I mean? So it's like, by the way, I'm talking to my straight audience. Straights, wake up. Listen up. Because I'm I'm, I'm attacking you right now. Um, Plucking a guitar does not make you any more or any less of an artist in comparison to somebody who sings pop music. You know what I mean? Like, this man, Mandy Moore is an incredibly talented artist. But she went more than half her life thinking she wasn't because she was told by men like this who pluck a guitar that she's not and it's like neither is he he was in a gap commercial and he had a a room full of executives telling him what his next song would be he's no different than samantha mumba (laughs) there's no difference i'm sorry um but ryan was though in fact as i've said many times a very mainstream artist he as I just said, was in a Gap commercial with Willie Nelson. He performed on um, CMT Crossroads with Elton John. And Elton John said in the episode, this is like a really big deal for Ryan Adams fans, that uh, Elton's um, entire album, the uh, Songs from the West Coast album, uh, was entirely inspired by Ryan Adams. And that just so happened to be Elton's um, best performing album the one that he kind of stole Ryan's sound openly. Um, and again, by the way, the same thing happened to him twice. He recorded an entire album and the label told him it wasn't radio friendly enough. So he scraped the entire thing and recorded an entirely different album with more of a pop influence. And, uh, you know, an interesting thing about Ryan was that he would, and I believe he still does this, he would write at least five to ten songs per day. Like, he's just, like, this songwriting maniac. He can whip up a song in, like, three minutes. And um, so, like, he literally writes hundreds of songs per month. Um, to the point that when he performs sometimes on stage, like, he'll bring up his notebook. And he'll sort of shift through the pages and randomly pick a song that 
he's maybe never done or that isn't finished or that he's like tinkering with lyrics on and he'll test it out to the audience kind of like a, a person would test out like stand up um and people who go to his shows know that there's a chance that they'll get this like raw experience of listening to a single that you maybe won't hear for another five years but he's like testing it out on the audience um and again this is why the label kind of took advantage of him in the sense that that they knew if we don't like his music he has at least 500 other songs in his back pocket and he did and they would tell him all the time we don't like this album get rid of the entire thing he would scrape or scrap 14 songs and then by the end of the afternoon have 30 more and be like how about this like the man just literally wrote songs all day every single day and i've got to be honest again it kind of makes me happy to hear things like that it makes me feel validated you know what i mean (laughs) that's something that you expect from 3lw not ryan adams and it makes me feel like what's the old adage we're all born naked and the rest is drag (laughs) isn't that the isn't that the old adage um and i do think maybe it's because i'm not a ryan adams fan that i'm not like highlighting just how famous this man was and how successful he was um in 2001 the guardian actually did an interview with him that i quoted earlier where they referred to him as the new graham parsons which is very ironic given that's who he um was influenced by when he debuted and uh you know they had people like willie nelson and elton john and steve Earl all just kind of like publicly licking his butthole you know what i mean and really he was really considered to be the face of this new music genre and the face of a music generation like he was just such a huge deal especially during this time um now this is where things get fun for me during the mid-2000s things take a turn before this ryan adams was this sort of media darling um he didn't really interview a lot he was very sort of elusive and you know private and and kind of weird and the more famous he became the more in demand it became for him to be interviewed and speak publicly and he went from being this sort of golden boy to this bratty drunk tyrant really and uh, his media persona really dissolved pretty quickly you know he treated interviewers really terribly um he would evade questions about his life and he became increasingly really difficult to work with um news started to leak that his label didn't want to work with him anymore and he did an interview with this guy named ian watson who was a london-based pop culture journalist in 2004 that went i guess sort of early 2000s internet viral um the opening line of the interview was literally he answers the phone like a like a petulant teenager another day another interview to sulk his way through um he told ian about this conspiracy that he had worked up in his mind where like he felt like people at rolling stone were out to get him they wanted him to fail and rolling stone the publication did not want him to be successful and they were purposely spreading rumors about him that weren't true to media outlets to derail his career and this is the shit that i'm talking about it couldn't possibly be that he is just in fact difficult or that he's treating people poorly or that some of the people who feel some type of way about him 
um, are valid. Nope, it's that Rolling Stone. There's a conspiracy, you see. Uh, it's, it's, it's that Rolling Stone. The publication is out to get him. They want they want to see him fail, like an old-timey soap opera. It's like the bold and the beautiful. They want to see uh, his house fall and crumble to the ground. Um, and just to put some perspective on how strained Ryan's relationship was with the music industry since he had started... Um, I pulled this kind of long quote, but it says, um, if you want to know the dirty fucking secret that is my stupid labels trick, I'm a musician, so I'm paid per album. Well, they found out a way to not pay me for any record but one. They're saying that Demolition was a rarities compilation and not a real album, so I never got paid for it. Gold was supposed to be a double album, but they took the last five songs and made it a bonus disc and put it on the first 150,000 copies. They fucked over my fans making them pay extra for a record I wanted to be a double album. They counted that as one record. They won't count Love as Hell now because they say that it's two EPs and not a proper record. I'm on a six-record contract and I've already handed I've already handed in four other albums that they haven't released. They haven't paid me for anything and the only money I'm making is off playing live shows. And that entire interview if you want to go back and find it is Google Ryan Ryan Adams Guardian it's fucking wacky bananas, batshit, buffoonery, craziness. Like, truly, it is insanity boots the house down. Mama, um, he can't focus on anything. The interviewer says he gets sidetracked and he's, like, looking around the room and just being really disrespectful, um, speaking to other people in the middle of, like, saying something to the interviewer. Uh, he starts berating the interviewer about whether or not he likes the record. At one point, Parker Posey who at the time was not only dating him, but was written in the album as an executive producer. Uh, like, what? Uh, she takes the phone and has a full-fledged conversation with Ryan while she's holding the phone, completely ignoring the interviewer. Uh, Ryan had basically... I mean, you could hear him in the background talking to her about, like, mundane shit. While this guy is, like, conducting an interview. Um... And Ryan had basically sank himself into a depression. He became a regular at every dimly lit dive bar in every city he traveled to, and he started using drugs to cope. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from that interview um, from The Guardian. It says, Because I'd been a lonely person all my life, I'd go to these places in the evening. I liked the warmth of the environment and everyone who had, the, who had problems. They all just disappeared. I never drank during the day or when I moved or when I mowed the lawn, but I couldn't drink unless I found cocaine, which is actually really sad. Not huge quantities. I wasn't living Scarface, but you would do a bump on the edge of your hand and sit there and tell stories. I don't know. He said, I don't know this. At, I didn't know this at the time, but people have since said that they were certain I would die. So much that the New York Times literally released an article in 2007 titled Ryan Adams Didn't Die. And, like, you can just tell by the statement, I wasn't living Scarface, you do a bump on the edge of your hand and sit there and tell stories. The guy who thinks that people want to hear his coked-out stories at the bar, who, by the way, is there alone and likes... Let's break it down. Like, let's really go there. Who likes going to the bar alone because he knows other people at the bar have problems. So he likes the energy of a room full of depressed alcoholics 
who have issues because they disappear. And then he does a bump and tells, and quote, tells stories. Imagine. That's the guy who, I'll tell you who that person is. That's the person who tells you that they have to tell you something and has you lean in real close and then wraps their arm around your neck. I've had this happen to me. And then, (laughs) and then wraps their arm around your neck and pulls you in real close and, uh, like almost breaks your neck. You know what I mean? It's the person who like evades your space in such a profound way that you you're shocked by it. You know what I mean? Like that is they want to hear me do a, a bump and tell stories. I don't think so, sir. Um he started routinely snorting heroin mixed with cocaine and he would also take handfuls of whatever pills he could find and wash them down with alcohol. Um by 2007 he was sober with the help of his girlfriend, Jessica Jaffe, uh, who apparently used Valium therapy and attended 12-step meetings with him. Um, from what I gather about Ryan Adams, having known little to nothing about him as a human person, he seems like somebody who has a really hard time being held accountable, being told what to do, um, being told he was wrong, dealing with anything difficult. He's just... He is a brat. This man is a fucking bratty little fuck. And this dates back as far as the 90s. Like, you know, he comes off as this, like, this defensive little fucker um, in most of his interviews. And when it comes to his battle with drugs, he's no different. He still sort of downplays the level of addiction. It makes it seem like he sort of had it all together the whole time. And, you know, all it was was a couple bumps off of his knuckle or whatever, and uh, that was it. I'm sorry, but the New York Times doesn't write an article about you titled, Ryan Adams did not die this year if all you do is go to bars, tell fun stories, and do the occasional bump. Like, that's not, that doesn't facilitate an article about the shock that you're alive. Um... I'd like to transition over to Mandy Moore for a second, if we may. I just got really excited. Let me take a sip of tea first, though. Good, good, some good nasty Christmas tea. You know what I mean? Um, the last time we discussed Mandy Moore on this podcast, we had left off at a time in her life where she was being sort of reintroduced to us as an actress, and she had just starred in A Walk to Remember, which ranked in a shit ton of money at the box office. She was praised by critics and moviegoers. And we now enter Mandy Moore's experimental, like, I don't know, I'm on a quest to be taken seriously as an artist and remind you that I can, in fact, sing and that there's more to me than a robotic hip thrust or an Herbal Essences commercial. Um, She released an album called Coverage, which was a compilation album of 70s and 80s love songs and the album actually did perform surprisingly well it reached number 14 on the billboard 200 which is her highest to date and it sold 53,000 copies its first week again her highest to date and um you may not remember many singles from this album but you definitely remember mandy moore's version of have a little faith in me and i don't know why for some reason i thought that have a little faith in me was like old school blonde mandy who did like a cover for like i don't know some fucking soundtrack or something like a bug's life or something i don't know um i didn't i 
completely forgot that that song came from her compilation album of love songs. Um, it went to number 39 on the Billboard Top 40. And in an all-music review of the album, they said, While coverage isn't always successful, it is always admirable and likable, and certainly puts more on the right path for an interesting, successful career. And even though that's like a really small little quote, I do think that that review does a really good job of summing up in general the public's feelings towards Mandy Moore at this time. Um, I don't know. Like, she had potential to to prove herself. She had proven herself to be an above-average actor, right? Especially in comparison to her pop counterparts, who were also all sort of dabbling and acting in their own way. And then she released an album that was very well-intended, and it showed... It, it wasn't showboaty, it wasn't cocky, it wasn't in-your-face, it wasn't obnoxious. It was Mandy Moore's very respectful way of letting us know that she was capable of more. No pun intended. Actually, pun intended. Let's say I did it on purpose. But you know what I mean. Like, it, it was it was respectful. It wasn't like this whole... It wasn't her going out and like... I don't know. <laughs> Do you know what I'm trying to say? It wasn't her going out and performing on stage in like, like silk gloves up to the armpit and like doing like cr- like a Sonia Morgan cabaret crooner style performance, like laying across a piano. It was just her like being chill and being like, "These are songs I love," and like, I don't know. I've never gotten to do music like this before, and I hope you guys like it. Like, this is who I actually am. Um, That being said, the album was still kind of considered to be a disappointment to her label. And in 2004, they released a bunch of Mandy Moore compilations. And um, she was then released from her record label. And she spent the next few years really leaning into acting. Uh, But she, you know, she felt mismanaged. And the roles that she accepted during this time were for cheesy, low-budget movies that tried to, like, pander to the teen audience and most of them failed miserably. Uh, she starred in How to Deal and uh, Chasing Liberty, two films that received super negative press and barely made any money. Not a good look for a girl who just starred in a massively successful, like, giant big box office uh, film that won the hearts of America. You know what I mean? To then go do, like, a straight-to-DVD, like, shitty teen film. She also starred in Saved, uh, with Jenny Malone and uh, Macaulay Culkin, a movie that didn't get a wide release but was loved by critics, and it did gain a really large cult following. I remember Saved being one of those movies that I would go to the video store and like not pick up until I did, and then I I owned it for a million years and I would watch it all the time, and my friends and I would quote it, and there were all these, you know, like it was one of those movies where like if you knew the movie, everybody had inside jokes about Saved. You know what I mean? Um, but this was sort of that, I don't know, this was also that era in Mandy Moore's life where she became, you know, sort of rebellious against her early stage presence. She was very rebellious against early young Mandy Moore. Like, she wanted you to know that she was not that gal. In a 2006 interview, she, um, talked about how, well, she basically had made a joke that, her debut album felt age-appropriate for the time, but also just sucked so bad, and that her second album was so terrible 
that she wished she could pay back everybody who purchased it. Like, really just sort of denouncing, you know, pulling a Miley. Do you, you remember when Miley was on Ryan Seacrest and she said uh, during the Bangers era that anything she released prior to Bangers is, like, basically not her music? Except for, like, Party in the USA and The Climb. <laughs> the only two th- the only two songs that she uh, that she claims. I do, by the way, wish that Miley would every once in a while perform Seven Things. You know what I mean? Remember Seven Things? Anyway, uh... <laughs> After her contract with Epic ended, Manda Manda signed a deal with Sire Records that ended up falling through because she she didn't have enough creative control over the project. And she ended up meeting with The Firm, which was a small label owned by EMI, uh, where she released her fifth album, Wild Hope. Um, And she really put her heart and soul into this album. It's the first one that she was able to co-write each song um she hired uh john i don't know how to pronounce his last name alaya alagia i don't know google it alagia uh um he was a guy i don't know him but he was somebody who was known for working with dave matthews and liz fair and uh to executive produce he was basically hired into executive produce the album and most of the songs in the album, like I said, they were written about, they were written by her, but they were written about her breakup with Zach Braff. And uh, they were released herself via MySpace. And I know that I've said this a million times in this podcast, but like, young people will never understand, like a young person, you, a youngin, whoever you are right now, you're like 20 or whatever, listening to this, and you think that you have this idea of what it means to be like, Oh, it was released on MySpace, which means, like, that she just posted it on... Like, I'm sure that in your mind it's comparable to her posting it on, like, Instagram. Let me tell you something. It's not. Like, MySpace was as important as, like, if not more than, like, iTunes. Like, it wasn't a... It wasn't used for streaming. It was used to... These artists had complete, 100% creative control over everything they wanted to release with MySpace. I remember Britney used to, like, just steal people's beats on MySpace, and then Carrie Hilson would come and, like... Carrie Hilson and, like, um, Bloodshy and Avant would come and just, like, record songs from, like, beats that teenagers made on MySpace, and they wouldn't even... They wouldn't even, like, ask for rights to the songs or pay these kids that came up with the beats. It was the wild, wild west of music, for real. Anybody could make music... And it would just so happen to take off. You had people like Tila Tequila who would be like, I'm going to post a song on MySpace. And then all of a sudden they were just like music artists or like Jeffree Star. I don't know. It's insane. But she released the, the music on MySpace and decided to, to Annie Oakley it herself. Um, Wild Hope is Mandy's most critically acclaimed album to date. It's also, um, I don't know. This was Mandy trying to let us know that she actually all along wanted to be like Fiona Apple. She always wanted to be like a Tori Amos, a Fiona Apple, a, I don't know, a Liz Fair. Um, uh, you know, that was her gig. That was that was a Sarah McLaughlin, Alanis Morissette. That was her fantasy. Like that was made. That was who Mandy Moore wanted to be as an as an artist all along. And this album was her way of letting you know that. Like, forget about me thrusting my hips in that empty pool. Bitch, I'm Fiona Apple. That's who I really that's who I really am. 
Now, we have to talk about this relationship, and things are about to get very, very dark, so I'm just letting you know. Um, so in early 2008, news started to circulate that Ryan and Mandy were dating. New York Magazine ran a piece titled, Ryan, Ryan, ugh, Mandy Moore and Ryan Adams are dating? Sweet and sensitive. And when a reporter from New York Magazine asked Ryan about it, he said, I can't believe you guys would print lies like that. You said Mandy Moore and I were dating, which we're not. She's single, and I don't know why everyone thinks she has to be in a relationship. And you implied that I was cheating on my girlfriend. I would never do that. One of my exes cheated on me uh, with her ex while I was touring. And I'm so hurt and upset that you would print lies about me and my friend. And then New York Magazine, this is actually really funny. Then New York Magazine ran a piece apologizing for the assumption um, that Mandy and Ryan were, in fact, dating. Um, But the really funny thing... Oh, and by the way, upon Ryan's request, they had to put that in the article. Upon Ryan's request, we retract the statement. He probably threatened everybody with a little switchblade. Then, in a confusing turn of events, Ryan released a statement, like, the same day to OK Magazine that he and Mandy had been dating since December of the previous year. He said, Mandy is one of those genuinely sweet, angelic people you wish to meet your whole life. I am grateful for our friendship and how it allowed us both to grow and learn more about each other. And another strange turn of events, he also announced their breakup during the same interview. He said, unfortunately, I am allergic to paparazzi, and I found that the best antidote to that sort of nonsense is staying behind the guitar and typewriter, staying close to my support group of friends and bandmates, and not engaging in activities that prevent me from taking care of myself and others. I found the entire speculation and subsequent photographs and intrusions terrifying and only wish to live as normal a life as possible so that I might always remain punk as fuck and sober. After their initial split, they got back together in December of the same year. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, just to give some insight as to where Mandy Moore was emotionally during this time, that her parents had also just split up after 30 years of marriage Um, Mandy was on a family vacation with her entire family, her brothers, her mom and her dad, and she came across her mom's laptop. Um, She opened it up and she found an email that was typed out to her. And she was like, why is my mom typing out an email to me when we're on vacation together? And it was basically this letter explaining that she had fallen in love with somebody, that somebody was a woman, and she was leaving Mandy's dad. Um, and Mandy has a really interesting family story. Like, I I don't know if I mentioned in the last time I talked about her, but her brothers are both gay. And then her mom came out obviously late in life as a lesbian. Um, so her being straight, like she's literally the minority in her family. Like her, basically her whole family is, is, is gay, which is awesome. Um, a, a dream. Could you imagine? Um, So in early 2009, it was confirmed by Mandy that she and Ryan were engaged. They announced, um, the announcement was also tied to Ryan, uh, releasing a book of poetry and Mandy's announcement she would be releasing a sixth studio album called Amanda Lee. And in March of 09, Perez Hilton confirmed that Mandy and Ryan tied the knot in Savannah, Georgia, um, at the 
the chat the chatham county probate court so there was just like a courthouse thing um mandy was asked by reporters why they didn't have an actual wedding and she said i've never really been that kind of girl i kind of feel like because i've been able to get married in a few films i kind of got that whole giant wedding fuss out of my system the real thing can be considerably less of a big deal which like i don't believe that for her i think that mandy Moore, like i i've i see mandy Moore in a cupcake wedding first of all i either see mandy Moore in like a big poofy cupcake wedding dress or something like very carol carol rideswell like simple lace silk straight down like conservative and sexy gorgeous perfect beautiful chanteuse um she wore a cream colored well <laughs> a cream colored lace t-length dress with flats and ryan wore skinny jeans a t-shirt and a blazer um they had one friend present and they exchanged simple silver bands that they got from a local antique store and ryan later said in an interview that he didn't even remember marrying mandy because of the painkillers he was taking at the time and he sent out a tweet saying when someone when someone told me that I got married, I thought they were joking. Then I realized how many painkillers I was taking. Honestly, there wasn't enough to numb my shock. Ugh, galley goops. <laughs> um, and then he deleted the tweet. Which, like, I love when celebrities delete tweets. Like, what are you thinking? When you've uh, however many million followers, you don't you don't think statistically not one single tween took a snapshot? Snapshot? I'm eighty years old a snapshot um so a month into being newlyweds mandy did an interview with ew where she was asked if ryan helps her with her music or if they release anything together or if they'll be releasing anything together in the future which is ironic given what we know about him now and how he used to kind of hang that over women's heads to gain power over them um she said Uh, She said, I'd throw him a bone. I know he needs the work. I'd certainly allow him to come on the road if he needed a job. Uh, She said, no, I'm just kidding. But I'm sure in due time, something will probably come about in terms of collaborating. We certainly have done that at at home, writing together. It just organically happens. In terms of putting stuff out there for the public consumption, I don't know. Maybe somewhere down the line, that'll be fun. Um, And it's ironic, like given what we know and also what I'm going to read to you in a little bit, but just, like, keep that in mind. And then Ryan did an interview with LA Weekly that went on to become pretty well-known. It's making its rounds again because Ryan Adams is in the news right now, where he stopped the interview and refused to answer questions after the guy brought up Mandy. Now, mind you, Mandy wasn't as private about their relationship as he was. She at least allowed people to ask her questions about him. Um, Ryan, if you mentioned her name, would just fucking lose his mind. So I'm going to read this whole thing to you. It's pretty long, but just go with it. So the interviewer said, On the surface, it seems like you and Mandy Moore are polar opposites. Could you pinpoint a specific moment when you realized you wanted to spend the rest of your life with her? Ryan said, I understand why you would be interested, but I understand the, and I, he said, and I understand the question, but you should know that I don't discuss my personal life. And the interviewer said, how much stock do you put in what rock critics say? For instance, I think one criticism against, in, against you in recent years is that you've been overly prolific. 
Ryan said, I don't understand your question. He said, are you personally affected by negative reviews? Ryan said, it isn't personal. It's just about records. It is what it is. It's a very vague question you're asking me. I don't know what review you would be talking about. I feel like you're making a generalization and asking me to comment on a generalization about a nonspecific question, which is weird. I don't understand what the point, the point in me commenting on that would be. And the guy said, have you ever read anything about yourself in which a critic pointed out to you, uh, prolificity is out to your prolificity as a negative? Uh, granted, <laughs> I don't have a specific review to back that up right now, but I was hoping you could comment on the notion that some might view your uh, constant output as negative and whether you would take any stock in that. <laughs> Prolific compared to what bands? The consistency or inconsistency of other artists, I consistently make records and put them out for sale so people who so people can decide to buy them or not. I don't want to be rude, but I'm getting the idea that you don't have any idea about my career. I release records on my own label. We're talking about rock critics, and you haven't asked me anything about my new record. We're not talking on topic at all. You're asking me vague questions about my opinion on rock critics. I'm in no way trying to be harsh to you, man. It's fine. You didn't hear the record or didn't have one sheet or didn't have the one sheet and aren't invested in the material. I'm making time to do this article because I want to talk about my new record. Let's agree to pick up again and on a, on a better note and talk tomorrow. And it was reported that Ryan then hung up on the interviewer and then made sure that the interviewer added in the article that he did not cut, not hang up on him, but cut the interview short. And a few years later, he told BuzzFeed, okay, so I hung up on that guy because in the middle of, of the radio, or he said, I hung up on that guy because I was on the radio getting asked about my wife. I was, it was, I was really nice about it at first, um... And I'm sorry, but I don't repeat myself. The deal is the deal is this. I'm a very private person, and I'll be a gentleman and say I'm not talking about my marriage ever. I'll never, ever talk about my marriage. Which makes a lot of sense when you find out that, uh, well, give me a second. Let me sip my Christmas tea. So while Ryan was in New York, Mandy filed for divorce in January of 2015. And according to legal documents, Ryan st- stated... Um, August of 2014 as their separation date, which confirmed that for several years they had been living separate lives. So it's like, of course he doesn't want to answer questions about his marriage because he's barely married. They don't even live together. He hadn't seen Mandy in two years. Um, well, hadn't lived with her in two years. They were basically broken up. And uh, a source from People Magazine said they honestly haven't seen each other in forever. There came a point where they almost never did. She got married so young, and even though the age difference wasn't a huge deal, it was still tough on their relationship. They really were just two different people. He's such an introvert, and she may not want her life out there every day, but she's so sweet and friendly and social, so they're just complete opposites. Um... Something worth mentioning, Ryan and Mandy adopted more than eight animals together. And in the divorce, you know, I was like reading the divorce, uh, the divorce documents. Um, Mandy asked for spousal and pet support, which I think that's the first time I've ever, I've ever like dealt with that on this podcast, pet support. Um, Court documents also stated that Ryan at the time was making $151,000 a month. 
and Mandy was earning less than a quarter of that amount, so she was seeking spousal support. And in 2017, Mandy did an interview with Glamour where she said, I didn't choose the right person. She admitted saying she felt spiritually and fundamentally stuck in her relationship. I don't feel guilty for the divorce. I don't fault myself for it at all. When people said, I'm sorry, I was like, no, sorry would have been had I stayed in a very unhealthy situation. I didn't. I found my way out. And when I did, things actually opened back up for me. So then Ryan read that interview and he responded to her on Twitter and said she didn't like the Melvins or Blade Runner. It was doomed from the start. If only I could remember the start. It's like cool. Like a joke about you being like fucking pilled up while you were married to a Chanteuse. Like good for you. Uh, (laughs) So I want to get into these abuse allegations. I just reread the article and I did my best to describe each girl's um claim so i'm just gonna go down the list and uh go over what each girl listed in the article claimed about ryan um like a ballpark of what he said or what she said that he did and uh who the person was so in february of 2019 the new york times ran a piece again if you haven't read read it titled oh my god there she is my co-host gas Titled Ryan Adams, Dangled Success, Women Say They Paid a Price. Um, It just came out in February. I think it was like February 9th or something. Um, Doesn't matter. It's out in Google. And if you haven't read the article, they basically give insight into Ryan's very specific way of mentally threatening and tormenting women and underage girls. And he's been doing this for um, a little bit over a decade or as long as, I mean, as far back as the first person claims. So, the first girl mentioned, her name was Ava. Um, The article went by her middle name to protect her because she was underage during the time that this all took place. Um, Ava, who was an aspiring musician, started corresponding with Ryan in 2013 when she was 14. Um, Apparently, Ryan exposed himself to her several times via Skype and would proposition her for phone sex. Um, He would send her text messages saying, you know, that he would get in trouble if anybody knew what they were talking about. Um, he told her to keep their exchanges a secret while continuing to ask her for nude photos. He even made a joke in one of their texts that got, um, examined by the police that, uh, if people knew what he was doing, they would view him as R. Kelly. Um, yeah, like just like, and his thing, by the way, this like reoccurring theme of promising these girls that he will make them a star, very R. Kelly, Make them a star. Um, he said it himself. Could have been more, could be more of a perfect uh, description. That he would make them a star. That they're like, you know, I've never seen talent like yours before. Oh my god, I have to work with you. Can I produce an album for you? I'm in love with you. Within like a week of knowing them. Um, the second artist listed was Phoebe Bridges, um, who was 20 at the time. He invited Phoebe to perform for him at his studio and compared her to Bob Dylan. Um, he also gifted her this like really expensive guitar and told her that they were going to work together and that she, he was going to produce her debut album. Um, he immediately started sending her these like flirty text messages, which then led to a relationship. And a week into knowing her, he discussed marriage with her and told her that she uh, was going to open for him on tour. 
And then his attention very quickly became obsessive and emotionally abusive. Um, she was asked to prove her whereabouts to him and leave social situations so that they could have phone sex. Um, he told her on several occasions that he would kill himself if she didn't do what he told her to do. Um, two of her songs were released under his label and, uh, he was given 100% credit for her ability as an artist by the public. Um, he also asked her to show up to a hotel telling her that he needed to give her something. And then when she got there, she opened the door and he was naked, like waiting for her. Um, the third woman listed Courtney J who at the time was 35 um, she got a message from Ryan asking her to collaborate. And when she met up with him, he spent the entire time propositioning her for sex. They never ended up recording anything together. Um, she said that she ended up laying in bed with him, but they didn't have sex. And then, towards the end of the article, Mandy um, stated that uh, when they met, she was in, as I said earlier, this very transitional period in her career, having just left her label... And Ryan asked her not to sign with anybody and allow him to manage and produce her music. Which, like, I mean, if you think about it, for somebody like Mandy Moore who wanted to go in the direction of a singer-songwriter um, who maybe did want to learn how to play guitar and explore this other side of herself musically, um, that's great. And Ryan Adams is obsessively respected by people. And, you know, he's the exact kind of person that you would expect her to work with whether they were dating or not during that time in her career um so they wrote songs together that ryan promised to record but they never did or they would write songs together and then he just to be a, a dickwad would have other women come into the studio and record them um he would also tell her regularly that she wasn't a real artist like i said earlier because she didn't play instruments mandy said his controlling behavior essentially did block my ability to make new connections in the industry during a very pivotal and potentially lucrative time, my entire mid to late 20s. Um, Ryan's ex-fiance, Megan Butterworth, uh, stated that he was controlling and emotionally abusive to her as well. He would isolate her and dictate who she was allowed to speak to. She also said that he would turn rageful and smash things um, to intimidate her. So he would never physically harm her, but he would, like, you know, shatter things around her to to scare her. Um, and when she broke up with him last year, he sent her over 100 text messages, emails, and phone calls um, telling her that he would kill himself because of her. He also posted a photo of her on his Instagram and said, get it while it's hot, folks. Butterworth is single. Um, Ryan has, of course denied all of these allegations and he doesn't deny them with an explanation he just says like nah that he's literally like a fucking child and then a few weeks ago mandy was on um the mark Marin podcast and she said i was living my life for him it was entirely unhealthy and it was an entirely unhealthy dynamic i had no sense of self it was imperceptible wait <laughs> imperceptible imperceptible uh, I was so small in my own world. During Moore's marriage, she says she took smaller jobs because of Adam's dependency. She said it would become abundantly, abundantly clear while I was working, things would completely fall apart at home. 
And I've also read a really interesting article. I think it was a BuzzFeed article. Um, a, a couple people have made this comparison now. So I don't know where it originally stemmed from, but if you Google it, you'll find it. But um, a lot of people were comparing um, Bradley Cooper's character in the 2018 version. What? 2018 version of A Star is Born to Ryan. That he was like, you know, this alcoholic alt-country musician who was emotionally abusive to a young girl who was talented and naive about the way things work in the music industry and derailed her career because of his selfishness and his addiction issues and you know his uh, his need to control i mean it is it is it's eerie the comparisons i think that it's like obviously a star is born is like the pretty woman version of um what a lot of these women went through but i don't know i just you know as you know I'm, I'm triggered by anything negative about mandy moore and like i couldn't wait to record this as soon as i found out that uh that she had spoken out and i do love that these women like banded together and they were like no fuck him like let's release this like let's release our statements and like talk about what happened and i also like i read a quote that i loved from mandy where she said like we're not gonna like not allow him to you know let us do music we're not gonna not release music because ryan adams is a cunt like no so this is like so newly developed like we have yet to see what's going to happen he's currently under investigation um the police are going through all of his text messages and emails um obviously something's going to happen because he i mean there's no way that he was only talking to one underage girl so i have a feeling that by the time you listen to this or maybe i don't know in the next few weeks that um something big will have happened with ryan adams i really do and i i hope so and like i said at the beginning of the podcast i do think that the music industry is due for its like me too moment and you guys know like i'm of course fully supportive of the me too movement but like i'm ready for the me too movement where like kids that are being fucking abused are able to get some sort of validation like it's one thing for adult women who are, like, in their mid to late 40s to be able to speak up. It's amazing. Women like this who, you know, could have potentially had these amazing careers. And a lot of these women in, in these articles about, um, or in this specific article article about Ryan, stopped doing music. You know what I mean? So who's to say what their lives could have been had they continued doing it? But... I don't know. I just don't think it's there's any real comparison between that and like, you know, kids who especially like young boys, like young boys like that are in the industry who we all know and loved and grew up loving who have spent, you know, 20 or 30 years not being able to talk about the fact that they were molested. And I think that there are a lot. I know that there are a lot of men like Ryan Adams in the industry that are just sort of bubbling beneath the surface so i don't know maybe i don't know i don't know what's gonna happen if things go as they always do they're gonna just kind of sweep under the rug the fact that he was talking to a 14 year old girl i mean it took us this long to fucking prosecute r kelly i mean like hi surviving r kelly was great don't get me wrong it was fucking incredible i was hooked and i watched it all in one day but 
how many months ago was it that we profiled R. Kelly on this podcast? And all of those women's stories have been public for a very fucking long time. I mentioned a lot of their names in the episode. I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't understand it. I, not that I've like thought that I would be the whistleblower on R. Kelly. Like, like that's not what I'm saying. But it was public information. It's public knowledge. It took me one minute to Google search that information. There are a million articles about it. It's not like Lifetime blew the lid off R. Kelly. Like, that that was all public info. And it was 20 and 30 years old. Oh, I don't know. It's 1 a.m. I I need to, like, tone it down. I'm screaming. I'm sweating. Clearly, I got my voice back. Um, I've found my voice in the words of Taylor Armstrong, and I'm not afraid to use it. You guys, I love you. I'll see you next week. Um, hopefully, there'll be some sort of development by that time on Ryan and... If so, I will update you and let you know what's happening. If not, we'll keep our fingers crossed and keep praying. But I love you, and I'll see you next week, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day, night, week, month, year. Uh, Bye. Thank you for listening to The Smush Room, an emotionally broken psycho's Patreon exclusive. Please make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps your boy. Also, make sure to head over to patreon.com slash evpsychos for more information on this show and other Patreon-exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McEady. That's T-R-O-Y-M-C-E-A-D-Y. You can also follow this podcast at EBP underscore Smushroom. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details